You are listening to the Transforming India podcast jointly brought to you by the Deepak and Neera Raj Center on Indian Economic Policies at Columbia University and the Times of India. I am Arvind Panagariya, director of the Raj Center and professor of economics at Columbia. My co-host on this podcast is Professor Praveen Krishna. He is a professor of international economics and business at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome Praveen. Hi Arvind, delighted to join you again for the sixth episode of this podcast as we continue to discuss Indian economic policies. Today we're recording this episode from the sidelines of the Columbia Summit on the Indian Economy, a two-day symposium focusing exclusively on India and its development. So we're capitalizing on our hosting of several prominent academics at the summit and getting some of them to talk about their policy-relevant research on India. Yes, Praveen. And today, we have the pleasure of having Mary Lovely, Professor of Economics at Syracuse University and Senior Fellow at Peterson Institute of International Economics. Mary's present research focuses on foreign investment in China and lessons for India. I'll hand it over to you for the majority of this interview, as our editor, Rebecca McGilvery, is also joining this conversation. Welcome, Mary. We're delighted to have you on the podcast to discuss the research you've just presented at the conference, as well as your thoughts on India more generally. Let me just start with a broad question, which is, how might FDI benefit developing countries like China or India? I mean, that's a very important question. A lot of times people view FDI as the creation of an export platform, but that's really a misconception. We see FDI that enters into a host country for a lot of different reasons, and it is very heterogeneous in terms of where the money's coming from. So let's take China as a case. We have a lot of foreign investment, particularly from Taiwan, Hong Kong, Macau, which basically is used for export-based production. So of course, the most famous would be Foxconn, and that benefits China by creating employment and providing opportunities for domestic firms that can then gain capacity to supply Foxconn. So increasingly over time, we've had Chinese companies that have been able to create power packs and other types of inputs into laptops, cell phones. So that's one type where it comes in, it's gonna be export-based, and local companies can benefit by hopefully raising quality enough to be able to service the multinational for advanced country markets. Another type of FDI, and it's the type that the U.S. primarily does, is to serve the domestic market. So a U.S. multinationals, about three-quarters of their sales are to the domestic market. So a good example here might be Procter & Gamble, which manufactures baby diapers for sales inside China. It doesn't export baby diapers back to the U.S. for the U.S. market. That is, uh, of course, a source of revenue. A lot of American companies have had their fastest profit growth by operating in China and serving the Chinese market. Uh, and it improves the products for Chinese consumers. So this is something that is often overlooked by U.S. technology in toothpaste, in washing powders, in diapers, uh, various types of other sorts of consumer goods, not to mention business uh, inputs, is very important for raising and not just firm productivity in China, but also the level of welfare of Chinese consumers who value these products. So um, how FDI benefits the domestic economy is really dependent on what the multinational is doing, and multinationals do all kinds of things. 
That's terrific. Now, one of the questions facing Indian policymakers concerns how we might get more in terms of kind of more foreign direct investment into India. And looking at the Chinese experience, what policies there would you say were most helpful in enabling China to get the amount of FDI that it actually has over the last couple of decades? So to answer that question, we really have to go back in time after the Asian financial crisis when foreign direct investment into China dipped and the Chinese policymakers realized that they needed to do more to attract FDI and they really liberalized their regime. Prior to that, they really used FDI mainly to try to improve the state-owned enterprises. So a classic example here is the auto sector where they would put, say, a GM with a provincial government-owned partner. Uh, and the idea was to enable the state-owned enterprise to develop its technology, its ability to serve the domestic market. Uh, along the way, the foreign automakers, not just GM, Ford, but also German automakers, Japanese automakers, made lots of money serving this, you know, extremely rapidly growing market. Um, so in that sense, it was used really to try to solve some of the problems they had with low productivity in the state sector. After the Asian financial crisis, they really wanted to attract more investment and develop the economy more broadly. They removed restrictions on where FDI could go. They liberalized some sectors and allowed FDI to come in to serve the domestic market. And it all helped to build a more competitive environment for Chinese private firms. Uh, there's always this fear among private firms or even state firms that allowing foreign investors in will result in a lot of closures of these companies or unfair competition. But in fact, it's actually building competition that you want so that you will get exits of less productive firms and entry of more productive firms. That's a rough and tumble process, but it's basically how economies grow and get better. And China really pursued that and helped to enhance the ability of FDI to play that role after 1999. When China joined the WTO then in 2001, it signaled that China was going to have permanent normal trade relations with the United States. It led to a burst of foreign investors going there. And a lot of that was to serve the American market. So we get an increase in the movement of electronics manufacturers into China, for example, from neighboring locations, more offshoring from the United States, and a very dynamic private sector inside China. At the same time, China had to liberalize on some domestic policies, like the Hukou system, which limits the ability of workers to move from inland provinces to the coast or even within provinces. They had to provide labor to these burgeoning manufacturing sectors on the coast. They had to provide land for these uh, factories to operate. So they had to make other types of policy changes within that allowed these activities to flourish. And then, of course, they had to make sure that they lowered tariffs on the inputs that these companies needed and not just allow, you know, the multinationals to have their inputs duty-free as they would in sort of like a special economic zone, but also allow lower-priced inputs for domestic firms serving the domestic market so that those domestic companies could also be competitive. Thank you for that, Mary. One thing that really stood out to me, obviously you're such a, an expert on FDI, I was wondering if you could outline some of the basic differences between China and India's ability to attract FDIs. 
So China has been at this game far longer, and it has attracted about five times the amount of FDI that, that India has to date. But India is coming on strong since 2013. It's gotten about $150 billion worth of foreign direct investment. So there is some momentum there. Now, an important difference between the two is about half of the FDI into China went into manufacturing. It probably would be more, except that FDI went into the burgeoning real estate sector in China, which has its own set of distortions, and, all, and that means sort of opportunities for investors as well, but really is not the most productive type of FDI for the local economy. India, on the other hand, has attracted more investment in computer and business services, something that, of course, India has a strong advantage in. So we have FDI for India more skewed toward business services, FDI in China more skewed toward manufacturing. Now those two things have very different implications for domestic growth. Clearly when you're manufacturing, you are in a sense absorbing a lot of sort of secondary school educated labor, where with business services you're absorbing more college educated labor. So they have very different implications both for where the FDI will go, which sectors of the labor market see some tightening, and also inequality. India has many existing bottlenecks and an uneven access by firms to resources such as labor and capital. Might FDI inflows make some of these issues worse? Yes, in the sense that it's always possible when you have more investment coming in competing that it could make bottlenecks worse. That's why it's so important that India enact complementary policies uh, if it's going to be serious about attracting more foreign investment and shaping that investment in ways that uh, provide maximum benefit to the people of India. So on labor market policies, clearly there's a lot of labor market policies that have been in discussion in India for the last 20 years. And so, you know, allowing firms to shrink and grow more freely is very important. As we said before, one of the advantages of FDI is to raise the level of competition. It has to be also complemented by policies that level the playing field for domestic firms. I mentioned earlier making sure that domestic firms have access to inputs at the same prices as the foreign firms. That could extend to tax policy as well. But in labor, in land, another very important resource, one that oftentimes is skewed toward foreign investors because it's something that governments can use to attract foreign investors, such as, you know, hey, we have this nice piece of land, it's already prepared for you to build your factory, or if you're in business services, this wonderful spot in a in a science and technology park. Those are certainly things that China had used very much to attract particularly high-tech investment in high-tech sectors. So those types of policies, if they're not complemented with sort of increasing access to the resource for domestic firms, can skew activity toward the foreign investors. That is something that I think domestic actors are concerned about and you don't want it to be sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy where we don't, you know, you don't undertake the necessary complementary policies and so you end up perhaps even inadvertently hurting the amount of positive spillovers that can be to the local domestic private sector economy. Well, Mary, let me ask you uh, one other question about the centralization of FDI policy or how decentralized it is in the Chinese context. Is, is there a lot of coordination between the center and the provinces in terms of attracting FDI? 
That's a great question, and it, it's really important because a lot of people think that competitive federalism, as we call, it, is good because, you know, it it will lead to sort of a race to the top, but it also can you know, really lead the company that's making the investment to have a lot of market power because it can play one province or state off against another. In the case of China, the sectors that are eligible to, for open to foreign investment are set by the central government. And that has the rule of law. So that, that is not contested by the provinces. Within that framework, though, the provinces then implement their own five-year plans, and they may stress certain activities. So, for example, there were a number of provinces that stressed uh, solar, uh, both in their own individual industrial plans, but also in attracting investment in that sector. So uh, you'll see them, the provinces choose areas that they think are particularly right for their local area strengths, and then try to attract foreign investors. One of the things that we don't hear much talk about in the United States is the fact that a lot of investors received a lot of help to enter. Uh, so early on it was uh, tax holidays or lower tax rates. Uh, even when the tax rates were uh, equalized between domestic firms and foreign firms, something that you know really upset the local firms because they always felt like they were sort of fighting with one hand tied behind their back. But even after that sort of rationalization, uh, foreign firms still have access to uh, preferential land, in particular, very important resource in China, um, licensing. So if you are a foreign direct investor, you can go to a government office building that, uh, say, Tianjin, which has uh, sort of one-stop shopping for the foreign investor. So. Uh, we know that the number of days to open a business in China is, is lower than it is in India. And one of these things is this continual innovation in how the regulatory apparatus works with respect to foreign investment. That's great for foreign investment. It's great to get the capital into China, particularly in areas where uh, China wants to develop. Unfortunately, those reg that regulatory streamlining is then not also offered to local businesses. And so that that uh, reduces the productivity growth in the private sector. So yes, this um, innovation can help uh, where provinces are essentially trying to offer the best deal to foreign investors, um, but it doesn't necessarily fulfill that earlier goal I talked about, which is complementary policies that keep them on an even playing field with domestic uh, interests. Great, let me ask you as well about exports. And could you comment a bit on the extent to which foreign investment in China has helped Chinese export performance? Many people stress the tremendous productivity growth in the private sector as propelling exports, and this is certainly true. We've seen dramatic growth in the number of exporters and the amount that they export from the private sector to the rest of the world. And in the, most of the export sectors, we're not talking about state-owned enterprises, which tend to be sort of upstream and utilities and heavy industry. They do do some. But you know, when we're talking about manufacturing, particularly light manufacturing, you're talking about the private sector, domestic private sector. So that you know, the domestic sector is part of the story. But foreign invested enterprises had a very large role in exporting right from the beginning, right from the get-go. So you go back to the 1990s, and then you move forward, and you see that they continued. So if we look just at Chinese exports to the United States, 
Now, it's important to recognize that U.S. multinationals operating in China are there to serve the Chinese market. By and large, they do not ship back to the United States. So when we look at foreign invested enterprises that are shipping to the United States, we see firms like Foxconn or other types of firms that are producing laptops, TVs, etc. And they are putting together pieces that they've assembled, yes, from Chinese uh, producers, Chinese uh, suppliers, but also from Japan and South Korea, and then shipping those to the United States. A startlingly high percentage of Chinese uh, exports to the U.S. come from foreign invested enterprises. Today it remains about 60 percent. So I think that's something that isn't very well appreciated. It's certainly something I've tried to highlight in my work because when the U.S. places tariffs on these flows, we're basically placing tariffs on foreign invested enterprises operating in China. Not only that, the share of trade, which is so-called related party trade here, is very high. So you might have Samsung, which has a facility in the United States trading with Samsung China. In other words, many of these goods are goods that are designed, engineered, and marketed by either United States firms, like the iPhone, or our allies. And so they're not Chinese intellectual property. They're not Chinese firms. And so they're, they're fundamentally different. And U.S.-China trade is very heavily dominated by that type of trade. It's not true with China's trade with, say, countries that have a lower income than China, although still about 40% of its overall exports are coming from foreign invested enterprises. So you can see how important they have been for China's export boom. Fantastic. Now let me ask you, you also analyze both Chinese and Indian trade flows, and maybe in the context now of the U.S.-China trade tensions, trade war, what do you see as sort of possible opportunities uh, for India going forward on the trade side? Yeah, we've heard a lot about sort of short-term opportunities for India, which may be related to sort of real exchange rate appreciations, which, you know, will happen, but then will be reversed. I'd like to focus more on longer-term types of opportunities for India. When I look at Indian exports in comparison to Chinese exports, what we see is that India has not been able to increase the sophistication of its exports to the same extent that China has. And a lot of that is, as I said, due to the presence of foreign invested enterprises. For example, high tech is very much dominated by foreign invested enterprises operating in China. So it's a possibility for India to increase the sophistication of its exports by welcoming FDI. That means it would break into global value chains at this point. So China has been, in some sense, a hindrance for India because you have to live in China's world. And China has already achieved such tremendous scale and has been able to raise its productivity so rapidly that even with 10% growth in real wages, they have remained competitive, which is quite the feat, right? But right now, the Chinese is turning back to more status-centered policies. Productivity is growing much more slowly. Uh, India has an opportunity to really raise its game and get into at least supply chains on products that are being invented now. So there's going to be a lot of new products that are coming out through the Internet of Things, which will revolutionize sort of our daily life. A lot of people still see this as sort of Jetsons. You know, we're talking about people flying around in spaceships. But really, it's coming. And those things are going to be designed, perhaps, uh, and engineered in the West, but they're going to be produced someplace else. And India could be part of that. 
We don't see the amount of FDI going to China now for manufacturing, but we could imagine a different future. Another analysis that we did is looking at how much of trade India does, how much of exports are in products that are highly fragmented. That is where other advanced countries you know, do certain parts of the production process, but leave more labor-intensive parts of the process to lower-income countries. And India really has not been able to increase the share of its exports that have that fragmented quality. So that says they're, in a sense, lagging China. We already knew that. But that means there is still a lot of opportunity for growth at a time when fragmentation is still happening, will happen in new industries. But China is going to be increasingly viewed negatively as a, as a place to do that. Uh, India could begin to market itself as a place to do that. And occupy some of that space. Right. It's not really made in India. It's joining. It's teamwork. Well, fantastic. Thank you very much, Mary. And many thanks, Mary, for joining us today and bringing a number of valuable insights. Let me summarize what Mary has said today. First, according to Mary, exports have been driven in China by the multinational firms in a big way. About 60% of the United States imports from China have come from multinational companies. Second, and very importantly, even when the multinationals come in to sell in the domestic market, they make a major contribution. And in the case of China, they have brought uh, high quality products for the Chinese consumers. In doing so, they have also helped improve the quality of the products that are supplied by the domestic firms. They have contributed to employment expansion within China, creating good jobs, uh, well-paid jobs. And they have also contributed to uh, improving overall ecosystem in which domestic firms also become efficient. Third, According to Mary, complementary policies are extremely important to maximize the benefits uh, that come from foreign direct investment by multinationals. Importantly, labor reforms and land-related reforms are extremely important. China helped maximize the benefits, uh, in particular by facilitating the mobility of labor from its countryside to urban areas, the cities. Finally. A big difference between the foreign direct investment in China and India has been that in China, foreign direct investment has been predominantly in manufacturers, in India, largely services, particularly business services. This distinction has important employment implications because manufacturers are generally more employment intensive and they also employ labor, which is largely secondary school educated whereas for business services, employment comes to the college-educated uh, individuals and the employment intensity is not as high. So that is again a lesson for India that uh, it could try to take complementary policy measures which would help push the foreign direct investment into manufacturers, particularly labor-intensive manufacturers. That is all we have for our listeners today. And this is Arvind Panagaria on the Transforming India podcast produced by Atisha Kumar research scholar at Columbia University and edited by Rebecca Megalwari at Insight at Columbia University. Thank you for listening.